0: Hey there friends, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and I'm back with part 2 of our Euron extravaganza. If you haven't seen part 1, I do recommend pausing here and watching that one first, not to be a stickler, but there is just way too much to summarize, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. That first video covered Euron as an evil Azor High reborn figure and an aspiring king of the apocalypse, and today we're diving into the specific evidence suggesting that he will become a new knight's King figure and a leader of the others in some capacity. I'd like to quickly say thank you to all of our patrons, Patreon sponsors, and thanks to all of you watching right now for clicking the like button, subbing to the channel, leaving comments, and sharing my videos. It really means a ton, and it helps with the vagaries of the YouTube algorithm. All the links to support the channel are in the video description, so let's get started. Here at the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, symbolic evidence is our bread and butter. Now symbolic evidence comes in a lot of forms. Sometimes it's esoteric and complex, bouncing parallel symbols off of people's faces and celestial objects alike, while making use of abstract concepts from various world mythologies. Sometimes it's just a matter of clever wordplay though, and i found a few key instances of Martin using the very simple word others to refer to the others. For example, in the quote we read at the end of Euron part 1, Tyrion asked Mokoro, Have you seen these Others in your fires? And he answers, Only their shadows, one most of all. And then he describes Euron. Because we know the Others are often referred to as shadows, our eyebrows perk up here at seeing the word Other and Shadow together, and we wonder... Is the author trying to imply Euron as an other, or more likely as a king of the others? Well, this is hardly a counterintuitive hypothesis at this point. And of course, Euron fits the symbolic archetype of Knight's King that we outlined in A New Knight's King. He has the blue version of the one-eyed Odin wizard symbolism, and of course, Euron is a kind of actual wizard. Drinking warlock wine, using blood magic to control the winds, and even seeking ways to become a godman. We also saw in Part 1 that Euron is probably using the name Eurathon Nightwalker as his alias when he's in Karth playing with glass candles. And that's, like, one letter away from Eurathon Whitewalker. So, you know, case closed. And then there are all these other quotes. On that we can agree. Euron lifted two fingers to the patch that covered his left eye and took his leave. The others followed at his heel like mongrel dogs. Aha! I told you the others should follow Euron. These mongrel dog others following him are actually his captains. And here they are again as the others in Victorion's internal monologue in A Feast for Crows. Aye, he thought, a great victory for the crow's eye and his wizards. The other captains would shout his brother's name anew when the tidings reached Oakenshield. Other captains can only sail other ships, right? When the Crow's Eye took the fleet to sea, Triss had simply lagged behind, changing course only when the other ships were lost to sight. Those are Euron's other ships, to be sure, a part of Euron's fleet. Euron's fleet is ready for war, as we know, and what kind of wars do other captains fight with other ships? The king's mood crowned his brother Euron, and the Crow's eye has other wars to fight. Yes, the Crows-Eye has other wars to fight. Very interesting. Sounds like good material for the Winds of Winter. Now it's actually not just the captains on Euron's ships who are the Others. Seems like the whole damn ship is crewed by the Others. On her decks, a motley crew of mutes and mongrels spoke no word as the Iron Victory drew nigh. Men black as tar stared out at him, and others squat and hairy as the apes of Sothoros. Monsters, Victarion thought. So as you can see, there are others on Euron's other ships, captained by the other captains, which by now should come as no surprise. The others came for the first time in the darkness of the long night, according to Old Nan. And here they are, sailing a ship with a sail like a starless sky. Now the others aren't squat and hairy, of course, but they are monsters, just like the others on Euron's ship. And the nickname of Gilly's baby, who was supposed to be turned into another, is... Monster. And although the real Others aren't quite mutes, like Euron's Others on the ship here, the Others don't break the snow when they walk, and thus it is said of them that the Others make no sound. Will repeats these words to himself in the Game of Thrones prologue, for example. Besides all these Others following Euron and sailing his ships, we also have the more obvious idea of the Ironborn Warriors being called Drowned Men, who are symbolically resurrected with the words What is dead can never die, but rises harder and stronger. Many people have noticed that this slogan of the Drowned Men also pretty well describes the Ice Whites who rise from death with ice-hard hands, unnatural strength, and unnatural life. In other words, Euron is all set to lead dead people who have risen again in his conquest of Westeros. And that sounds like Knight's King business. Check out this quote from Aaron Greyjoy's The Prophet chapter of A Feast for Crows, as the damp hare is greeted by one of those soft mainlander Ironborn who were only ever sprinkled with a few drops of salt water and not actually drowned and resuscitated like a real fanatic. Such tidings as we bear are for your ears alone, damp hare, the spar said. These are not matters I would speak of before these others. These others are my drowned men, God's servants, just as I am. I have no secrets from them, nor from our God, beside whose holy sea I stand. It's pretty great how they repeat it twice here. I would not speak of this before these others. These others are my drowned men. Now, the Drowned Man Credo does make them sound like whites, and this wordplay here calls them Others, but I think that's okay. The point is that they represent the combined forces of Night's King, the Others and their whites. And look, there's even more Drowned Men as Others wordplay in this chapter. You belong to the god now, Aaron told him. The other Drowned Men gathered round, and each gave him a punch and a kiss to welcome him to the Brotherhood. The others are, of course, similarly a brotherhood, being all male and, many of them, sons of the same man, be that Craster or the original Knight's King. And now we know what the White Walker hazing routine is like. A punch and a kiss. That's not too bad. I really really thought it'd be worse. A lot of people actually enjoy that kind of thing, a punch and a kiss. Spank me! And spank me! And me! And me! Yes! Yes, you must give us all a good spanking! Uh, Anyway. Just a moment before telling this newly drowned man that he belongs to the god now, Aaron thinks to himself, another one returned, and that other priests lost a man from time to time, but not Aaron, of course. The damp hare himself makes a great other priest, which makes sense because he's the one raising the dead, so to speak, by resuscitating the drowned men. Check out this scene from A Feast for Crows where the damp hare walks into the cold sea to counsel with his god. Aaron crept from his little shelter into the chill of the night. Naked he stood, pale and gaunt and tall, and naked he walked into the black salt sea. The water was icy cold, yet he did not flinch from his god's caress. So the sea from which the drowned men are reborn is icy cold. Which makes you think of all the icy lake symbolism of the Others, such as their voices being like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. And of course all that symbolism comes from Milton's notion of Lucifer the Dragon being imprisoned in a frozen lake in the Ninth Circle of Hell from Paradise Lost. Moving right along, Aaron himself is pale and gaunt and tall, which are all words used to describe the Others in the A Game of Thrones prologue. And then after emerging from the cold sea and counseling with the god, his body is steaming in the cold night air, kind of like another, with icy mists pouring off of him. The moment of his divine insight in the ocean comes with these lines. That man is drowned, and the god has made me strong. The cold salt sea surrounded him, embraced him, reached down through his weak man's flesh and touched his bones. Bones, he thought, the bones of the soul. The cold touch of Aaron's god is reaching into his body and touching Aaron's bones and soul as he's reborn. Doesn't this sound a lot like an icy, otherish transformation here? And now that he's transformed, if you will, into an icy other priest, he's all set to go about raising the dead into an army, only for Euron to sail in from Shai and take control over it. Euron steals control of the drowned men at the King's Moot, of course, and check out the passage where the damp hair, standing beneath the arch of Naga's bones, issues the summons for the King's Moot. The drowned men took up their driftwood cudgels and began to beat them one against the other as they walked back down the hill. Others joined them, and the clangor spread along the strand. Such a fearful clacking and a clattering it made as if a hundred trees were pummeling one another with their limbs. Alright, so that's three uses of the word other, and even the weirwood origins of the others are suggested, as the other-like drowned men's clacking of their wooden cudgels is compared to trees. Not just to trees, actually. Trees that are pummeling one another, as if they were tree warriors fighting. I'll remind you again that there is an entire weirwood side of the symbolism of the White Walkers of the Wood as they're known. And man, I really should make a video about that soon. But for right now, let's stick to the Euron, Night's King, and other symbolism. And just in case the skeptically minded amongst you, God bless you, are wondering if you can find this sort of pregnant use of the word other anywhere and then use it to construe a theory about the others, if you maybe smoke enough cannabis, the answer is no. There's only a small handful of scenes which repeatedly use the word other like this, and those scenes always have a context in which the wordplay makes sense. For example, it definitely makes sense here to see the people following and serving Euron being suggested as others. And one of the next videos that we'll do will be the Jon Snow Night's King video, and Jon has a chapter at the wall where the other wordplay is used no less than seven times. And of course, there is copious White Walker symbolism of all kinds to go along with, and it's going to make a damn lot of sense when I show you, I promise. Those of you who watched my recent Live stream called Journey to the Heart of Winter also saw the same other wordplay trick used at Daznac's Pit, which George used to symbolically imply Danny and Drogon as fighting others and whites instead of the slave masters of Marine. Another terrible and awesome way in which Euron is suggested as an icy White Walker King is through his warlock and shade of the evening symbolism. Shade of the Evening is a third-eye-opening psychotropic brew, so, just like the Weirwood Paste, we can see this substance as a trigger for an Odin-like expansion of magical sight and consciousness, but one associated with darkness and nightfall, as implied by the name Shade of the Evening. That fits very well with the core of Euron's character as expressed in that quote that we opened with in the Euron Part 1 video. Euron sees himself as a god-king rising from the graves here at the end of days, and he's opening his third eye with liquid darkness. Better still, there are specific ice associations that come along with this dark blue wine of the warlocks. It leaves those who drink it with blue lips, and of course, blue lips are normally seen on people who are extremely cold, who have caught frostbite. More specific is Danny's nightmare of Hisdar O'Lorak turning into a warlock. Beneath her coverlets, she tossed and turned, dreaming that Hisdar was kissing her. But his lips were blue and bruised, and when he thrust himself inside her, his manhood was cold as ice. She sat up with her hair disheveled and the bedclothes a-tangle. Yikes! Naughty bits are one thing, icy bits quite another. See what I did there. This may also be foreshadowing for Danny and Euron, uh well, uh participating in a scene that will make us all very uncomfortable. Let's just leave it at that. I will talk about Danny's potential relationship to Euron a different time, but as you can see here, this nightmare at the very least creates an association between blue-lipped people and icy body parts. As we discussed in the Born to Burn the Others video, the actual Undying Ones themselves seem like dead ringers for symbolic White Walker stand-ins. They became this way, of course, by drinking lots and lots of Shade of the Evening, which Euron is now basically doing keg stands with. I won't cite all the quotes at length since we already did that, but you will recall that the Undying Ones are referred to as No More Than Blue Shadows and Blue and Cold and that they have blue skin, hair, and eyes, as well as dry, cold hands. They gather around a floating, corrupt blue heart, which I take as a symbol for the Heart of Winter, and quite possibly a reference to the Shade of the Evening Trees as a kind of corrupted weirwood heart tree. And again, check out that Journey to the Heart of Winter video for more on my ideas about the Shade Trees. Pyat Pri, the warlock, even describes a meeting with the Undying as an honor as rare as summer snows. When that quote-unquote honor is bestowed upon Danny, when she confronts the Undying in their inner sanctum, we get lines that describe the Undying Ones as needing Danny's fire and life, and this hints at a desire to give Danny a cold transformation. If these undying are representing the others, as they seem to be, then this would imply that the others would probably like to possess Danny, that they would like to make Danny a knight's queen, video forthcoming, or perhaps just suck her life away like icy vampires. One of those cold, disgusting undying shadows is even sucking or biting at one of Danny's eyes, which could be hinting at the idea of an Odin like magical transformation for Danny, but of course, this would be the cold kind here. Needless to say, all this stuff about the others trying to possess Danny could certainly end up dovetailing with Euron's desire to marry and possess Danny as Euron draws closer to actual Night's King status. Of course, Drogon does turn the Blue Shadows and the Blue Heart into a bonfire, and Danny is not possessed, which certainly seems like more hopeful foreshadowing, and I went into that in detail in the Born to Burn the Others video. So as you can see, the Warlock, Shade of the Evening line of symbolism, runs toward the icy end of things. Thus, Euron drinking the Warlock wine and acquiring blue lips casts him as an icy wizard who draws power from darkness. A new Night's King to lead the Others, and those who can never die, having died already and risen again. Now, when we talk about the undying wanting to take Danny's life and fire, and how that foreshadows Euron and/or the others wanting to do that to Danny, we have to talk about Hands of White Fire, Lady. I'm talking about the tall shadow figure that appears alongside Euron in damp hair's nightmare vision of an enthroned Euron, the one where his face turns into a writhing mass of tentacles that we quoted in the Euron Part One video. Beside him stood a shadow in woman's form. Long and tall and terrible, her hands alive with pale white fire. Dwarves capered for their amusement, male and female, naked and misshapen, Locked in carnal embrace, biting and tearing at each other as Euron and his mate laughed and laughed and laughed. There has been much speculation in the fandom over the identity of this shadow lady with hands of white fire. And I'm honestly not sure who it will be. Obviously, it could be Dany if she is enchanted or transformed. It could be Melisandre, or perhaps Cersei, or maybe even Melora Hightower. But all the bard thinks the shadow could even represent Viserion, whose fires are described as pale, and who has a fair amount of ice dragon symbolism, and therefore seems like the one Euron will get if he gets a dragon, which I'm pretty sure he will. For the purposes of archetypal analysis, however, Hands of White Fire Lady, who is described as a tall shadow, sounds kind of like a Knight's Queen figure, doesn't she? Perhaps a fiery woman like Melisandre or becoming transformed or turned into a shadow. Or perhaps the shadow language implies that this magical woman is a mother of shadows like Melisandre and the original Knight's Queen. The white fire is the kind of fire which could be revealed as the cold fire of the others. So this shadow lady really could be just about anyone, ice or fire. A few things seem clear though. She wields magical fire, meaning magic in some sense. She has something to do with shadows, and the vision suggests her as Euron's queen of the apocalypse. That pretty much makes her some kind of knight's queen figure, at the very least, so we'll have to keep our eyes out for this person. As I said, Danny is definitely a candidate for Hands of White Fire Lady, and I'll talk about her a different time. But one person that I want to mention right now is Cersei. Now granted, there are huge differences between the show and the books where it concerns Cersei, and especially Euron. But it's still pretty easy to see how Cersei could rise to a level of villainy becoming of someone who is to be Euron's queen. I don't have time to do a full exploration of Cersei's symbolism, but even at a quick glance, she does appear to have some Night's Queen clues. For example, Jon sees her at Winterfell in a Game of Thrones and thinks, The queen seemed as cold as an ice sculpture, which certainly makes her sound like a knight's queen. And Cersei also does a lot of ice transformation symbolism when she's imprisoned in the Sept of Baelor. Cersei has a strong association with fire, green wildfire as opposed to white fire, and the potential for her to blow stuff up in King's Landing with wildfire does seem high. While we're talking about Night's Queen, I should also mention that the name Euron seems drawn from Europa, which is an ice-covered moon of Jupiter and also a Greek moon goddess. That definitely reminds us of Night's Queen, whose skin is as pale as the moon and as cold as ice. Euron is Night's Queen confirmed. No, no, of course, the implication here is that Euron is a Night's King who needs an icy, moon-pale Night's Queen standing at his side. The only question is who, and by all means, leave your comments below and tell me what you think. More clues about Night's King Crow's Eye can be found when we take a look at his blood-eye sigil again in the context of Night's King ideas. Now we've already discussed that the black crown that he wears and that appears on his banner is a Night's King, Dark and Sun symbol. But consider the fact that on Euron's sigil, the black crown above the blood-eye is held up by two crows. And Night's King was supposedly a black crow of the Night's Watch who declared himself king. A King Crow, in other words. And to this day, the Wildlings even refer to the Lord Commander of the Watch as Lord Crow. Of course, it's not just the crows holding aloft Euron's black crown that says he's a crow king. His nickname is Crowseye, and after becoming king, he's called King Crowseye. Gosh, that sounds like a good title for a video. He's already dressing all in black, though I'm definitely waiting for him to wear that black-tied sable cloak along with the Valyrian steel armor and the black iron shark's tooth crown to really cut a distinctive figure. Crows are also eaters of the dead, and this is the sense in which Martin employs the word in the title, A Feast for Crows, a book which chronicles the fallout of the War of the Five Kings. That certainly fits Euron as a king, rising from the graves and charnel pits during a time of death and destruction, or even Euron as an avatar of the god of death. Said another way, the crows who feast on the dead hold up Euron's crown. Thematically, this is clear enough. Euron is the king crow, the blackest of the crows, who's feasting on the dead and growing fat more than any other. As a matter of fact, the line in A Feast for Crows that spells out the meaning of the title of the book actually refers to Euron. Carrion crows make their feasts upon the carcasses of the dead and dying, said Grandmaster Picel. Pycelle. They do not descend upon hale and healthy animals. Lord Euron will gorge himself on gold and plunder, aye, but as soon as we move against him, he will go back to Pike, as Lord Dagon was wont to do in his day. You are wrong, said Marjorie Tyrell. Reavers do not come in such strength. A thousand ships, Lord Hewitt and Lord Chester, are slain, as well as Lord Sari's son and heir. Sari has fled to Highgarden with what few ships remain him, and Lord Grimm is a prisoner in his own castle. Willis says that the Iron King has raised up four lords of his own in their places. Indeed, Marjorie has the right of it here. Pycelle is badly underestimating Euron, clearly. Euron will not be content to feed off scraps, because ultimately he's no mere reaver, no common crow. Euron has much bigger ambitions, a dragon, all of Westeros, and maybe, just maybe, an army of the undead. Now I've said a few times that Euron is kind of like an alt-Bloodraven, with both of them taking after Odin, but with Bloodraven having fiery red symbolism and aligning with the Night's Watch and the Armies of the Living, while Euron has the icy blue eye symbolism and aligns with the Others and the Army of the Dead. Bloodraven is called the Three-Eyed Crow, of course, and Euron, in a sense, is also a Three-Eyed Crow, since he's called Crow's Eye and is opening his third eye, like Odin. Euron opens his third eye with the Shade of the Evening Trees, and Bloodraven uses the Weirwoods, so you can see that in several key ways, they are very similar, yet inverted archetypes. I went into this idea at length in the Feast for Krakens livestream, where I talked about the potential for Euron to have a transcendent Obtaining the Fire of the Gods-type scene at the top of the high tower, one which should parallel Bran's experience climbing the Tower of Winterfell and opening his third eye inside the Coma Dream. We should have no doubt that some sort of actual magical transformation scene is coming for Euron, and I'd guess that this should coincide with the fall of the Long Night. Old Nan says that Night's King Was only a man by light of day, but the night was his to rule. Which I've always taken as a clue about Night's King transforming himself into something more than a man when the Long Night fell. And indeed, that's exactly what Euron is set to do, likely near the conclusion of The Winds of Winter. I expect Euron to take Old Town and declare himself king there early on in the book, and probably set up shop for a while, so he could well be atop the high tower when The Long Night falls, which I have to think will happen before the end of Winds of Winter. Alright, so here's another pretty cool Knight's King implication that we can draw from Euron's One-Eye Sigil and all this stuff about him having a black crow's eye. If you recall from Euron Part 1, Theon thinks of the crow's eye as a black eye shining with malice. And Makoro sees Euron in his flame visions as a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms. Now here's the thing, Melisandre thinks of the Great Other as having one black eye in this passage from A Clash of Kings. Davos is arguing theology with Melisandre here, who is, of course, a red priest like Makoro, and he's making the point that it was the darkness which actually hid them from detection as they rode beneath Storm's End. The God of Darkness protects us now, my lady, even you. The flames of her eyes seem to burn a little brighter at that. Speak not that name, sir, lest you draw his black eye upon us. He protects no man, I promise you. He is the enemy of all that lives. Euron Crozai, enemy of all that lives. Yep, 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 that, that pretty much checks out. Now the main point here is that according to the Roloris, Euron just might be the Great Other, or perhaps we should say an avatar of the Great Other. And what is the Great Other if not the leader of the Others? So, the final question is how? How can Euron become an actual knight's king? Symbolism is great and all, but how does Euron come to lead the others? Well, it could be that he doesn't actually lead the others, but that he's simply the one to trigger the Long Night and the invasion of the White Walkers by blowing his horn one too many times, or by performing some other powerful magic. Euron may be intending to bring about the apocalypse with such an action, or he could be simply trying to do something else and sort of screw up everything accidentally. Either way, Euron is definitely one of the few human beings capable of wielding apocalypse-level sorcery. But there are two general ways that he could actually lead the army of the dead that I can see. And leave your ideas in the comments, by all means. So first, it may be that some remnant of Night's King, slash Azor spirit, is alive somewhere on the ethereal plane, most likely inside the weirwood net, and perhaps this spirit will take over Euron's mind and effectively steal his body. Euron is without fear, just like the original Night's King, and he's heedless in his quest to become a god-man, Quite often in classical mythology and just regular old storytelling, such hubristic figures usually tend to get more than they bargained for. In particular, the works of H.P. Lovecraft often have ambitious people like Euron ending up as doormats and temporary host bodies for incomprehensible entities like the Great Old Ones. This Night's King snatches Euron's body idea would also be a very close parallel to what happens to Inaluki, the Azor Ahai and Night's King figure of Tad Williams's Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. Inaluki starts off as an Azora High type figure, but dies, and then reemerges from the Ethereal Plains centuries later to become the villain of the story. I'll again refer you both to Grey Area's Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, A Song of Ice and Fire playlist, as well as a Between Two Weirwoods video that I did with Grey on my channel. But the point is that George has named Tad Williams and Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn as being highly influential on A Song of Ice and Fire. Said another way, if Knights King or Azor High Spirit is alive and reemerges from the Weirwood Net, it won't be coming out of left field. It'll be coming out of memory, sorrow, and thorn, like several other things in A Song of Ice and Fire. One other important thing to consider about Euron contacting the spirit of some dead entity that's trapped in the Weirwood Net or anywhere else is that in A Song of Ice and Fire, there only seems to be one astral plane, no matter what magic is used to access it. Melisandre gazes into the flames and sees Bloodraven and Bran, because Bloodraven and Bran can project their spirits out of their bodies and onto the astral plane, even though they're using Weirwood magic and Melisandre fire magic. We saw in the passage that we quoted earlier that Makoro can see all kinds of important folks in shadow form when he looks into his fires, and I don't doubt that Bloodraven can see other powerful magic users in a similar fashion if he were to put his mind to it. In other words, if Euron is using shade of the evening, glass candles, or whatever else to access the astral plane, there's no telling what kinds of spirit entities that he could run into and interact with. These entities might give him power and knowledge, and they may well be seeking to use him for their own agenda. Again, the most likely candidate for this would be the spirit of dead Azor Ahai turned Knight's King, which in my opinion is probably also the entity people perceive as the Great Other. Perhaps Euron will open one door too many and ZAP! Dead Azor Ahai takes over his mind, kinda like Bran takes over Hodor. This would be Azor Ahai reborn in a very literal sense, which actually at this point in the story would be a huge subversion of what we all expect that to mean. But what about Knight's Queen? Might she still exist inside the Weirwood Net or on some sort of ethereal plane? Maybe that's who Hands of White Fire Lady is. Perhaps Night's Queen has been tutoring Euron in the Netherrealm this whole time in preparation to transform him into a new Night's King. Probably not, but who knows? Hands of White Fire Lady is hard to figure out with what we know now. By the way, this would almost be like a weird version of the Alien Spirit Entity Girlfriend trope, and doesn't Euron seem like the type? The second option for Euron as an actual leader of the Others is kind of a more literal variation on the last idea. Basically, I'm thinking, what if Euron sees the ice magic of the Others as a power that he can grasp and then directly attempts to do so? For example, some people think that it was John blowing on the cracked horn he found at the Fist of the First Men, which actually called the Others and the Whites to the fist. I mean, if the Dragonbinder horn makes dragons obey you, perhaps the Horn of Winter does the same with the Others and the Whites. That's not too crazy, right? Sam Tarly has that horn in Old Town, of course, where Euron is about to attack. So Euron could well get his hands on this potential... Horn of Winter. Euron has also been gathering all manner of arcane knowledge from all corners of the Earth, so it's actually possible that Euron knows more about the Others at this moment than we do. With or without Sam's potential Horn of Winter, Euron may think he has a way of controlling the Others through sorcery. Although I've never heard anyone suggest this, I do think it's possible that Euron may find a way to directly access ice magic and transform himself. Just as Melisandra is in the process of transforming herself into an entity sustained by fire magic through her use of fire magic. It may be that Euron would need to go north to do this, or perhaps not. For example, we don't know if you have to live near any specific fiery place to worship R'hllor and access fire magic. It's worth noting that Melisandre calls the wall a hinge of the world and says that it will amplify her fire and shadow magic even though the wall is made of ice and is in the north. So it may be that at a certain level, magic is magic and the location doesn't determine how a user may channel that magic. In any case, what I'm saying here is that it's actually not impossible that Euron could literally replay the Waymar prologue of a Game of Thrones in some fashion. That Euron will physically journey north and attempt to confront the others in a clearing of the haunted forest, but with more magical resources and bona fides than Waymar could ever dream of. Heck, riding a dragon is probably the fastest way to get north, so maybe we will see the idea of Knight's King Euron and Ice Dragon Viserion all come together at once. It could even be that part of Euron's wanting to acquire a dragon has to do with his ideas about commanding the others. So there you have it friends, several ways in which all of this Knight's King Euron symbolism could actually play out at the conclusion of the story. Again, I'd love to hear your ideas about this in the comments below. I consider it my main job to point at and decode the symbolism and present it to you guys, but drawing conclusions from the symbolism is a fun activity for all of us. And now it's time to pay homage to the Starry Host.